0: If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction? And what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life, But if you can't seem to get out of it, you're not alone. Call 1-800-273-8255. They'll show you a way out of your depression, even if you're trying to deal with it through drugs or alcohol. With the FMLA, you can take a leave of absence from your job and return to it once you've found help. Call 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. Welcome to the Weekend Archives of Weird Darkness. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Each year, hundreds of people are reported missing in national parks and forests. Most are eventually found, but there is a smaller category of cases that are never solved, including a few close to home. 50% of the children who go missing are found dead, and the ones who are found are found miles away from where they disappeared, in areas seemingly impossible for them to get to on their own. In all cases, the parents say the child was right behind them when they disappeared. Children who are found alive won't talk about their experiences or say they don't remember what happened to them. I'm Darren Marlar and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome weirdos, this is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please share it with others to help bring them into the Weird Darkness as well. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… A pitch-black room at an inn yields to a strange glow. Known as California's freeway killer, William Bonin used a Ford van to lure in teenage hitchhikers to rape and ruthlessly murder. A series of unexplained incidents took place in the early 19th century at the Chase Vault, in the cemetery of the Christ Church in Oveston's Barbados. Each time the vault was opened to bury a new family member, all the coffins but one had changed position. A couple is haunted by a slain rooster. And each year, hundreds of people simply disappear from parks and forests. What happened to them? And where are they? We begin there. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Each year, hundreds of people are reported missing in national parks and forests. Most are eventually found, but there is a smaller category of cases that are never solved, including a few close to home. Most of those who have disappeared are children ages 20 months to 12 years and the elderly ages 74 to 85. Not one person carrying a firearm and only one carrying a transponder device has disappeared. Typically, a search is initiated and run for about 10 days before being dropped. 50% of the children who do go missing are found dead, and the ones who are found are found miles away from where they disappeared, in areas seemingly impossible for them to get to on their own. Yosemite National Park, with 40 to 45 cases, has the largest cluster of vanishings and oddly, in most areas where the disappearances have occurred. Huckleberries are almost always in great abundance. The majority of children who have disappeared had dogs with them. In some cases, the dogs returned, but the children never did. Children found alive won't talk about their experience or say they don't remember what happened to them. They are found usually running a low-grade fever and appear traumatized. In all cases, the parents say that the child was right behind them when they disappeared. Usually, the children are wearing bright, colorful clothing when they do disappear and even if they are found miles away without the shoes they are wearing, their feet are not scratched or bruised. Many of the areas that people have disappeared from carry such names as Devil's Gulch, Devil's Lookout, Twin Devil Lake, and Devil's Punchbowl, perhaps named to reflect the evil that people have sensed in these places over time. 95% 95% of the cases, bad weather strangely follows a disappearance, washing out footprints and other clues and making it impossible to carry on a search until the weather clears. 98-99% to 99% of the cases, tracking dogs are unable to find a scent or simply refuse to track. Almost 98% of the disappearances occur in the afternoon. Searchers have been known to cover an area over 100 times only to later find the person alive or dead in the very same area they've already searched. A few cases follow. In the Rocky Mountain National Park in 1938, a husband and wife hiked high into the park and sat down to rest. Looking up high above them on a cliff in an area called the Devil's Nest, they spotted a small boy all alone. Thinking the foolish parents were nearby, the couple moved on and later drove home. As they arrived in the valley below where they had hiked, they saw as many as 2,500 people mulling about, but didn't stop to ask what was going on. The next morning, they saw a photo of the missing child in the newspaper and recognized him as the child that they had seen. They drove back to the park to tell the searchers, but the young boy was never found. In April 1952, A two-year-old boy named Keith Parkinson in Ritter, Oregon, who vanished near Ubatilla National Forest, was eventually found an astonishing 12 miles away. He was found unconscious, 19 hours later, in a frozen creek bed. The journey would require the toddler to venture over two mountain ranges as well as fences, creeks, and rivers. This case is just one of many where children disappear and are later found several hundred percent outside of the grid system carefully designed by search and rescue teams. Additionally, there are some rare cases where, after tracking dogs have led rescuers to a large river, search teams will explore the other side, and miles away they find the kid. The FBI refused to give any information on the disappearance of another small two-year-old boy who disappeared in Yosemite in nineteen fifty seven. In that case, the boy simply vanished as he walked around the perimeter of his family's campsite. Bloodhounds and hundreds of people searched for him. He apparently climbed 3,000 feet straight up a mountain. He was found dehydrated and suffering from exposure with a t-shirt, no pants, one sock, and no shoes. One of the strangest finds by rangers was a missing man, Charles McCuller who was found leaning against a log, his pants around his ankles. The only parts left of him were part of his tibia in his right pant leg and part of his skull and his scapula bones in one inch by one inch pieces. On May 28, 1966, six-year-old Larry Jeffrey, who was vacationing with his family, walked away from his brother near Mount Charleston and never returned. The local authorities set out a five-day search made up of a few hundred men. There were no large animals in the area or car access, so if Larry wasn't eaten by a predator or snatched by a kidnapper, then just what happened to the boy? That remains a mystery today, as he was never found and with no solid explanation for his disappearance. It's as if he simply vanished into thin air. In a few cases, green berets have surprisingly shown up to join and or take over searches. This happened in 1971 in Newcomb, New York, when an eight-year-old boy vanished while walking back to a lodge to change his clothes. His scent was lost in a swamp, and he was never found. Young girls also disappear in national parks. In Yosemite in 1981, a 14-year-old girl, Stacy Eris of Saratoga, was backpacking on horseback with her parents and a group of people up 9,200 feet to Sunrise High Sierra Camp. When they stopped to rest, the girl asked if she could go with a 70-year-old man on the trip 50 feet away to take some photos. The old man sat down on a log and the girl went to the edge of an elevation to take a photo of a lake down below. She walked down the hill and never came back. In another more recent Yosemite case, a young woman was found dead at the bottom of a high cliff from where it seemed she had been flung. It was determined that she had been raped after her fatal fall. A six-year-old boy disappeared in 1969 in the Great Smoky Mountains. Two families with the last name of Martin happened upon each other and their two sons began playing hide-and-seek in the nearby bushes. When the parents called the boys into camp and one didn't return The boy's father went to find help. A rainstorm began as he ran down the hill. At the same time, further down the hill, another family with the last name of Key heard a sickening scream and looked up to see what they thought at first was a man hiding in the bushes. The boy's father reached the valley and called the FBI to meet him at the park, but the agent told him to meet them at another location, which made no sense. The Green Berets showed up again and took over the search completely. Meanwhile, Mr. Martin stayed in the park two months looking for his son, who was never found. The father stated that when the Key family spotted the man in the bushes, he or it was carrying something on its shoulder. However, none of this information the Key family offered was included in the FBI report. Paulitas was told during his investigation of this case that some wild men live in the park that the Park Service had not been able to control. 12 other people have disappeared in the same area, and the FBI agent monitoring those cases allegedly committed suicide. The phenomena is not limited to the U.S. either. In the Philippines, many people have disappeared, most never returning. When visitors go there, they are told that they must not wear colorful clothing into the jungle. The bright colors seem to attract whatever it is that takes people. This clue is similar to the American children who have disappeared wearing bright clothing. Casey Holliday went missing on October 14, 1990, about 10 a.m. near Alder Creek Street, Mary's, Idaho, at age 11. The boy was a developmentally disabled child, living with his aunt 8 miles south of Mary's and 20 miles south of Spokane, an identified cluster area. Casey was eventually found. 48 hours later, and just a mile from his aunt's home, babbling and seemingly in a daze. Thursday, May 27, 1999, Carl Landers, 69 years old, disappeared on Mount Shasta while hiking with friends. They were camping at a location called 5050, a place on the mountain where climbers can stop and rest before reaching the summit. According to his friends Milt Gaines and Barry Gilmore, Carl had complained about not feeling well and decided to take a head start toward Lake Helen. They never caught up with him and never saw him again. Carl was described as a very experienced climber, so it was unlikely that he fell. The Siskiyou County Sheriff's Department immediately set out on a search with the National Guard covering the air using an infrared helicopter and the U.S. Rangers and volunteers covering the ground on foot and skis no trace of Carl was found, not even his equipment, backpack or clothing. The latest disappearance is of a 34-year-old California firefighter, Mike Herdman, who vanished with his dog on Friday, June 13, 2014 in the Los Padres National Forest in California. He was camping with a friend when he ran off shoeless, chasing his dog downhill toward a stream. His friend searched for hours then had to hike two days out of the wilderness to find help. The area being searched is two times the size of the Grand Canyon. On June 19th, the firefighter's dog was found alive. Herdman was found dead June 27th. Like others who have disappeared into the National Forests, Herdman was found at approximately 1,200 feet above the river bottom which he had chased his dog into the day he disappeared. When his remains were discovered, Authorities were astonished to find him shoeless. Rescue crews spent nearly 5,000 man-hours searching and covered 50 square miles on foot and horseback, as well as by air, including the use of two drones. The sheriff stated it was unimaginable that a shoeless person could have traversed so far in such rough terrain. One of the more recent and highly unusual cases occurred in South Carolina. In this case, the boy was 21 months old. How well could he toddle and how far could he walk? How quickly could he get out of view? How much stamina does a 21-month-old child have? The boy was in his residence with the family dog and his mother. She left the room momentarily and somehow the boy and the dog got outside. There was a large open field surrounding the residence before reaching thick woods. The mother realized that her son and the dog were gone and ran outside to check the yard. The boy and the dog were not only not in the yard, they weren't anywhere in sight. The mother called the sheriff and searchers started to arrive en masse. By late in the afternoon, the weather started to change to rain. Searchers continued to walk the surrounding property and found nothing that first night. The first morning of the search, A sheriff's deputy and a natural resource officer were in kayaks on a river two miles from the victim's residence. They were just two of hundreds looking for the boy. A search helicopter was flying above the river looking for a body and had just flown over the kayakers. The two law enforcement officers were paddling upstream from the area of the residence and just turned a corner in the river when they made an amazing find. It was 2.30 p.m. when they looked at a sandbar in the middle of the river. They found the missing boy, alive, lying on his back in the middle of the sand. They immediately called the helicopter back to the scene to pick the boy up and take him to his residence. The pilot confirmed that he had just flown over that section of the river and the boy was not on the sandbar. Minutes later, though, he was lying there. There are many confusing aspects to this case. How the boy got away from his residence so quickly is not understood. How a 21-month-old can manage to go through thick woods, enter the river, and arrive at a sandbar in the middle of the river? Why didn't the boy respond to hundreds of searchers that were in the woods that first night? The boy did not suffer from hypothermia even though the weather had been in the low 40s with rain. The boy's dog did reappear at the residence. This is one of three cases where very small children have disappeared from the interior of a residence while with a family dog. Each case equally fascinating. Some of the possible reasons for the disappearances are Wendigo, a beast-like creature with an appetite for human flesh, variously described with matted hair, glowing eyes, and long yellow fangs who stalks the lonely places. The Wendigo legend was prevalent in the northern United States and Canada largely involving a cannibalistic predator who roamed around woods and forests in the coldest climates where food was scarce and survival was challenging, but also include demons as a possible cause, which goes along with the belief in the Philippines that the djinn or demons are responsible for the abductions. Also suspect are large birds and extraterrestrials. It was sometime in late October or early November 2003, my husband and I had been invited by friends to attend their daughter's christening in Oberon, in the central tablelands of New South Wales, Australia. When we set out on our trip, there were reports of black ice along the way on Bell's Line Road up in the Blue Mountains. This was unusual because it was already late spring. Seasons are the other way around in the Southern Hemisphere. Black ice forms when the air gets cold enough on the road surface and it's raining. It is a treacherous, clear, icy glaze impossible to see on the black-colored road, much the same effect as a diesel fuel spill. As driving under those conditions was dangerous, and we had been traveling all day, we decided to break the journey up by spending the night at the Comet Inn in the village of Hartley Vale in the Blue Mountains. It was a pleasant, historic inn established during the time when the shale mines were still open in the 1800s. We had dinner at the pub downstairs, which was a cozy, welcoming place filled with local memorabilia from the early settler's days. Despite our best intentions of having an early mark, we wound up staying until early hours of the morning, chatting with the woman who ran the inn slash pub and the bartender. It was well after 2 a.m. when we finished our drinks, both of us by now feeling in a mellow state. The room we were given was on the first floor, up a short flight of stairs and around the corner to the left. I can't really describe the room too well, being quite well and truly tuckered out by this stage. I think it was furnished in the early colonial style, probably from the 1880s or thereabouts. An old-fashioned lacy wedding gown hung on one wall. The room felt a bit crowded, with heavy, ornate, dark wood furniture crammed into a small space. The bed with its mile-high mattress was too tall for my short legs, and I could have done with a stepladder getting into bed. A dresser with a tall mirror was positioned really close to the right side of the bed where I slept, and I had to squeeze past it to reach the bed. At the same time, I had to be careful not to knock off the various porcelain knick-knacks displayed on the dresser or the vintage-style brass I think, touch sensor lamp. My husband, having done all the driving that day, fell asleep in an eye blink. But sleep wasn't in the cards for me. I'd come down with a gastro bug the day before we left home, and all the rich food at dinner, washed down with alcohol, wasn't agreeing with me. Before long, to my dismay, I had to get up again and make my way to the necessary room. Thick blackout curtains hung at the windows, so once the lights were off the room was pitch-black. I bumped my knee, then my arm on the corner of the dresser, fumbling around to find the brass lamp, hoping I didn't break anything too valuable or irreplaceable in the process. I remember muttering irritably to myself, where's the stupid light? A faint silvery-green glow appeared near at hand, and I thought with relief, oh goody, here's the lamp. So I tapped the lamp once more to brighten the light, proceeded to do what I needed, and climbed back into bed. By now, I was purged of all alcoholic effects. My forehead was clammy, and I felt as strung out as a wet linguini. Feeling miserable, I grumbled to my husband, I don't feel so good. He slept on, totally oblivious. By now, I felt too weary even to raise my hand to push aside the sticky strand of hair laying across my forehead. So, I just made a feeble attempt to blow it off. Then… I thought I felt a breeze pass over my brow, stirring my hair. It was barely a wisp of air. I thought someone whispered to me, there, there, huh? I blinked, but the room was too dark to even see my hands before me. Shrugging it off as my imagination, but strangely comforted anyway, I was finally able to sleep. The next thing I knew, my husband was moving around in the room getting ready for breakfast. Still hazy from lack of sleep and positively seedy, I touched the lamp and it occurred to me how the light was another color, amber-yellow now, instead of a pale silver-green. So I played around with the different light settings on the lamp by tapping it several times in a row. Tap, dim light, tap brighter light, tap full light, tap light off. My husband asked me, what are you doing? I replied, puzzled, the light's the wrong color. So I told him about my experience and wondered if it could have been a street light from across the road or a passing car at the time. But my husband reminded me that the window curtains were called blackout for a good reason. The curtains had been drawn when we went to bed and no light could be seen from the street. He also pointed out that there were no streetlights outside the inn or across the road. We were still discussing the reason for the mysterious light source as we sat at the breakfast table. When our hostess and bartender heard about our story, they exchanged strange looks, so we pressed them for further details and they told us the story about the room. Apparently, the room that we slept in had belonged to a young wife – they told us her name, but I've forgotten it – who lived in the house at the time, probably in the 1800s. Tragically, she died during childbirth in that very room while her husband was away from home. The wedding gown hanging up in the room been hers. Other guests in the past have experienced various things being moved around in the room or drawers and doors slamming. Once a well-known Australian celebrity, better not mention his name, spent the night there while he was filming a fishing show in the area. He was woken up when the foot of the bed was shaken violently. Guess she really wanted his attention. Although booked in for a few nights, he refused to stay any longer and promptly packed his bags and escaped the next morning. When I think on that breeze, it seems more and more to me as if a cool hand had gently brushed my damp hair back off my forehead. Was it a product of a fevered imagination? Who knows, but it's nice to think that someone gave me comfort when I was feeling ill. This weekend archive of Weird Darkness returns in just a moment. I've told people numerous times in the past that if I ever own my own business and I have employees that I have to take care of, what are the job training requirements is having them listen to or read the book by Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It has been extremely beneficial to me through the years. I've listened to the audiobook numerous times. I've got the print book as well on my bookshelves. But it is a pretty long book. However, right now you can listen to the entire Blinkist version and it'll only take you 15 minutes. And you can listen to it absolutely free with a 7-day trial to Blinkist. I love Blinkist, I use it every single day, and it's made for busy people like me and you who want to get the main points out of books quickly without having to read the entire book because, let's face it, we just don't have the time. Well, with an audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you can finish four books a day just while on your commute back and forth to work. And now they have a special deal just for Weird Darkness listeners. You can have a 7-day free trial so you can get all the books, including Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And after that seven days is up, you can still get Blinkist for 25% off if you want to continue as a subscriber. If not, you can still keep the free version of Blinkist and get a new book every single day anyway. Check it out – go to Blinkist.com slash Weird Darkness. That's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Weird Darkness. In 1979, dozens of murdered teenage boys were spotted on California's sprawling freeways, with one victim as young as 12. As police discovered the bodies of the victims, their corpses showed signs of violent sexual assault, with the modus operandi of the serial killer being death by strangulation and stabbing. Unlike most serial killers of the era, he had accomplices. These accomplices helped the freeway killer. With the physical act of the murder between Los Angeles County and Orange County. From an ice pick, to a tire iron, to a jack handle, the murderer used a variety of weapons for the murders. His name was William Bonin, and he officially murdered 14 teenage boys and unofficially up to 21. Some victims managed to escape from Bonin's clutches and recounted their terrifying experiences, I told him that I didn't need to go any further, and the car drifted to the side of the busy freeway and stopped. Suddenly, without a word, he took out a piece of cord, lunged across and wrapped it around my neck. I thought, this is it, I'm dead. This victim escaped after he kicked Bonin in the groin and ran out of the car, flagging down a police cruiser as Bonin sped away. A second victim, David McVicker, actually testified against William Bonin in court. He had set the gun on his left-hand side, but he already locked the door on the right, so I couldn't get out without reaching around and grabbing the door. So I knew that by the time that I did, he could easily grab the gun and shoot me. He started taking off his clothes and told me to take off mine. He was raping me in the front seat of the car, and he had a t-shirt around my neck with a tire iron through the sleeves. and He was twisting it, trying to strangle me. In this rare case, Bonin unexpectedly let the 14-year-old David go free after the rape. William Bonin himself was the product of a dysfunctional family and child molestation. Born in Connecticut on January 8, 1947, he was the middle child of three brothers. He grew up with an alcoholic father and absentee mother and was primarily raised by his grandfather, who was a convicted child molester. He ran away from home at the age of eight. In his early adolescence. He was sent to a juvenile detention center for stealing license plates. During this time in the detention center, Bonin was allegedly sexually assaulted by older teenage boys. In 1965, Bonin enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and served during the Vietnam War as a helicopter gunner. During his enlistment, he assaulted two soldiers under his command. After the war's end, Bonin married, divorced, and relocated to California. At the age of 22, he was arrested for sexually assaulting five boys in the South Bay communities in 1969 and spent over five years in prison. After his release, he sexually assaulted the aforementioned 14-year-old David McVicker in 1975. Bonin was immediately shipped back to prison for an additional four years. Bonin was once again released from prison in 1979 and vowed to never get caught again. This tragically resulted in an escalation of the violence as Bonin began to murder his teenage victims. However, Bonin didn't commit these murders alone as he had four accomplices, Vernon Butts, Gregory Milley, James Monroe, and William Pugh. His first murder victim was Marcus Grabs, a 17-year-old German exchange student He was last seen hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway on August 5, 1979. His naked body was found a few days later in Malibu Canyon, stabbed nearly 80 times with a nylon rope around his neck. On August 27, a mutilated body of Donald Hyden, a 15-year-old from Hollywood, was discovered in a dumpster. His throat had been slashed and he had been strangled and raped. The same fate met 17-year-old David Marillo, who disappeared on September 9th while he was on his way to the movies. Three days later, his body was found, sodomized and mutilated. A number of the dead, like James McCabe, were just kids. 12-year-old McCabe was waiting for a bus to take him to Disneyland in March of 1980 when he was snatched, bludgeoned, strangled, and tossed in the trash. The majority of Bonin's victims had been sexually assaulted and were strangled with their own t-shirts, with the killer using a metal bar to tighten it around their necks. Bonin's body count continued to rise until police found one of his accomplices, William Pugh, who confessed to allegedly only witnessing the murders. Following his statements, the police quickly placed Bonin under surveillance. On June 11, 1980, Bonin set out in his van stopping to talk to five young men along the way. Finally, one young man accepted a ride. Police caught Bonin in the act of sodomizing the 15-year-old victim. They found a length of white nylon cord, several knives, and a thick scrapbook of clips about the freeway killer in his van. He went to trial on November 4, 1981 and was sentenced to death. Bonin made history as the first person to die by lethal injection in California. On his final day, Bonin spent his time with friends and in the late afternoon, he was escorted into the Death Watch cell. For his last meal, Bonin requested two large pepperoni and sausage pizzas, three pints of coffee ice cream, and three six-packs of regular Coca-Cola. During the evening, Bonin was visited by the warden and the Catholic chaplain. His last words were, that I feel the death penalty is not an answer to the problems at hand, that I feel it sends the wrong message to the youth of the country. Young people act as they see other people acting instead of as people tell them to act, and I would suggest that when a person has a thought of doing anything serious against the law, that before they did, that they should go to a quiet place and think about it seriously. Boren was executed on February 23, 1996. As for his accomplices, Two of them died, with Vernon Butts hanging himself while awaiting trial, and Gregory Milley succumbing to injuries from an attack in prison. For taking part in one of Bonin's killings, James Monroe is currently serving 15 years to life for second-degree murder. However, William Pugh was sentenced to six years for voluntary manslaughter and was freed from prison after serving only four. A series of unexplained incidents took place in the early 19th century at the Chase Vault in the cemetery of the Christ Church in Ouestens, Barbados. Each time the vault was opened to bury a family member, all coffins but one had changed position. When this had happened several times without explanation over a number of years, the vault was eventually abandoned. The vault, located about seven miles from Bridgetown, was a large structure built for the Chase family and their close friends. The vault was built roughly half above and half below the ground, which allowed for some degree of protection from the elements. The first placed inside the vault was Mrs. Thomasina Goddard in a simple wooden coffin built in July 1807. Two-year-old Mary Ann Chase was placed in the vault the very next year. The older sister of Mary Ann, Dorcas Chase, Was put into the vault on July 6, 1812. Some claim that Dorcas starved herself after she was forced into depression by her father. A few weeks later, her father Thomas Chase died and was to be placed in the vault. Legend says that Thomas was one of the most hated men in Barbados. When the Chase Vault was opened for the burial of Thomas Chase, the eight pallbearers who carried Chase's coffin down into the vault were the first to notice that the two lead coffins already in the tomb were not where they had been left a month earlier. Mary Ann's coffin was lying upside down in the opposite corner from where it had been placed. The workers returned the coffins to their side-by-side positions and left that of Thomas Chase next to them. The smaller coffin of Mary Ann was placed on top of one of the larger ones. After the crypt was resealed with its heavy marble door. A curious murmuring started among the Bayesians. The mourners soon resolved to place the blame on the slaves who had assisted in the burials. The alleged cruelty of Thomas Chase toward his servants offered an easy revenge motive. The case apparently having been solved, the crypt remained undisturbed for four more years. On September 25, 1816, the vault was opened for the burial of 11-year-old Charles Brewster Ames, As with the previous time the vault was opened, each of the coffins had been misplaced and thrown about, including the 240-pound coffin of Thomas. The vault was put back in order and resealed. 52 days later, Samuel Brewster was to be buried inside the Chase Vault. This time a large group of witnesses crowded around the vault looking for the mystery to continue. The slab of stone which covered the door was carefully examined. No defects were found, and the vault was opened. The vault once again was found in disarray. Mrs. Goddard's coffin, the only wooden one placed in the vault, was badly damaged and was later wrapped in wire to keep it together. Several investigators, including the Reverend Thomas Oderson, examined the vault. Nothing could be found that would indicate a cause for the strange happenings so the vault was once again cleaned and sealed. On July 17, 1819, the vault was once again opened, and once again the vault was found to be in disorder. The only coffin untouched was the wooden and fragile one of Mrs. Goddard's. This time the governor of the island, Lord Commamere, ordered his own professional investigation. The entire vault was looked over and nothing strange could be found. The coffins were restacked with Mrs. Goddard's wooden coffin being stacked against a wall as it was so frail. Sand was placed on the floor to catch the footprints of the perpetrators. The vault was then reclosed and personal seals of the governor were placed on concrete. Everyone on the island awaited the next reopening. The next opening of the vault was not for a burial but for the governor's curiosity. On April 18, 1820, the Governor and several friends traveled to the vault and found his seal unbroken. When the vault was opened, however, it was found that the coffins were once again in disarray, some even flipped upside down. The sand revealed no footprints. After this incident, the vault was abandoned and the coffins were buried elsewhere. The vault still exists today at Christ Church Parish and it is still vacant. This is a story that is absolutely true and happened right here in New York. It's about a rooster that had its head cut off and continued to crow for days afterwards. A brother-in-law of mine, living in the Upper Bronx, occupied a five-room, one-family house. At the rear of his garden, he had erected a chicken coop and a long runway for the chickens to exercise. He had 40 chickens, including a magnificent specimen of a rooster which stood nearly two feet in height and how that boy could crow. This brother-in-law of mine was a taxicab driver. He arose every morning at 4 a.m. and left the house at 5 to be at work by 6. He retired to bed every night at 9. The only trouble was that he could not secure a night's unbroken sleep due to the crowing of the rooster. He complained to his wife saying that roosters got to go. A few days afterwards, Upon his return from a hard day's work, my brother-in-law took an axe, grabbed the rooster, and severed its head. The rooster ran around headless for a while and then collapsed. Chicken fricassee didn't taste bad that evening for supper. The next night, my brother-in-law was awakened in the early hours by a crowing sound. He was not sure, so he listened again. There it was, the rooster was still crowing. He knew that he was not dreaming because the crowing repeated while he lay in his bed. Not wishing to alarm his wife, he told her nothing about his experience in the night. He went to sleep again the next night, and sure enough, the rooster woke him up again. He wanted to tell his wife, but knowing how Irish and superstitious she was, he kept the knowledge to himself. However, the third night was too much for him. He was beginning to get nervous, All he knew, and was sure of, was that he had killed that darned rooster, and being over 21 he had sense enough to know that dead roosters can't crow. He had only one rooster at the time, he now had none, so where was the crowing coming from? He hit upon a plan, he got up and dressed, and taking a flashlight and an axe with him, went out into the light and down to the chicken coop. He placed his hands on the wire mesh enclosing the runway and waited. He wasn't disappointed. Sure enough, there it was, right inside the coop, cock-a-doodle-doo. He almost dropped the axe, but gathering his courage, or what was left of it, he rushed to the coop, tore open the door, and looked in. There were the chickens, all asleep, huddled up close to each other, no rooster. He closed the door quickly and bolted for the house. When he was safely inside, he woke his wife up and told her the story. His wife looked at him to see if he'd been drinking and said, are you losing your senses? You know that you killed that rooster three days ago and that we ate him. Now hold your wish and get back into bed. waking a body up with such a fool tale as that. Go on, go back to sleep. He tried to convince her, but it was no use. Suddenly, the rooster crowed again and she sat up in bed. There you are, there you are," said the brother-in-law. "See, my lion, you hear it? You hear yourself, don't you?" His wife crossed herself and said, "Glory be to God." He's come back to haunt us. Oh, what'll we do? What'll we do? I'm going to go right down again, and now if I have to kill every one of them damn fowl, I'll get to the bottom of this," my brother-in-law said, and away he went. He went straight to the coop once more, opened the door, and going inside, closed the door after him. He put his flashlight out and waited. Suddenly, the cock-a-doodle-doo came again, and he put the light on. What did he see? He couldn't believe his eyes. One of the chickens was crowing. Oh, said he. That's it, is it? He took his handkerchief out of his back pocket and, tying it around the legs of the culprit, slammed the door. When he reached his wife, he told her that he had solved the situation and explained what he had discovered. He killed the chicken the next evening when he came home from work. And the peculiar thing about it was that, when he began cleaning the chicken, he discovered a three-inch-long nail right through the gizzard. Figure it out for yourself. However, he did get his sleep after that, and that ends the story. If you like what you hear, and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. I post commercial-free episodes of my podcast and tons of bonus material there as well, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you do like the show, please leave a review in Apple Podcasts, Doing so helps the show be seen by others, and I might read your review here in the podcast. Guzwa said, I've been listening to this podcast for a while now, and it's one of my favorites. The stories in this can be everything from disturbing to downright terrifying. I love it. Keep up the good work and continue the terror. Grassy Area said, Been listening for a while. Love the show. Content is great. Keep up the great work. Dat Boy said, I love his voice, the way he tells the stories and the music. He is an all-round great narrator, and hopefully my story will be read. Thanks to everybody who has posted those reviews, I really appreciate it, and dat boy, I'm looking for your story. I'll try to include that here in the very near future. Do you have a dark tale to tell? You can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com, and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. Comfort at the Comet Inn was posted at yourghoststories.com. California's Freeway Prowler was written by Giselli Ruiz. The Chase Vault was posted at ghoststory.co.uk. Cockadoodle Boo was written by James McGinnis. And people are vanishing into thin air in our national parks was posted at TheNightSky.org. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. Find links to both in the show notes. Find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I have links to all of my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marler. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. This episode of Weird Darkness is sponsored by MyPillow. They've been a sponsor of ours now for quite some time, and that's simply because they are great. I love MyPillow. It stays cool all night, it keeps its shape, it comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a 10-year warranty. And what my bride really likes about the pillow is that it's machine washable. You can throw your entire MyPillow into the washer and it comes out like new again. You can't do that with any other pillow. Well, right now, just for Weird Darkness listeners, you can get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com and then enter the promo code WEIRD – that's MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD or call 800-945-7192 – that's 800-945-7192 or MyPillow.com and be sure to use that promo code WEIRD.